Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys on this beautiful fall, feels like October Sunday morning. Hope you guys are enjoying the weather. We're going to be in the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles open to Judges chapter 9, where we continue our series through the book of Judges this fall. As you guys are turning there, I'll tell you guys, if you don't know me, uh, or if you, if you have been here for a while, it's maybe surprising to you that it's our third Sunday, and I haven't at some point referenced Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show. Uh, so I don't know if any of you guys are Tonight Show fans. We are, at least I am, in our home. It's kind of an avid staple of our nighttime, but uh, we're going to kind of start off with a little Fallon action. Um, I'll tell you guys, uh, as we jump into a story about a man who's going to take leadership, who is frustrated, and he's going to take charge, it seemed fitting to harken back to a hashtag bit that Fallon did uh, a few months ago, uh, in which he put out the hashtag, this one, it was, uh, if I was in charge, uh, and people would uh, tweet in different things that they would love to do if they were potentially in charge. And so here's a few examples of one. Uh, For example, here you go. A guy writes in, pizza delivery guys would carry extra pizzas at all times so I could hail one like a taxi, which I think is a great idea. Uh, Also, another reminder to you guys, immediately after our service, we're actually going to be serving pizzas for lunch. So if you don't have lunch plans, you don't want to deal with the crowds at restaurants, stay right here. We'd love to have you. It's free and it's pizza. So if you like me at about 12.15 and you get hangry, this is the place for you today, all right? Uh, here's another one for you. Uh, people with Iran and Marathon bumper stickers would have to replace them with stickers that say, I think I'm better than you. <laughs> Hashtag if I was in charge. As a non-runner, I especially like this one, all right? Here's another. Mega stuffed Oreos would be regular Oreos, and regular Oreos would be called diet Oreos. How many of you guys are Oreo fans in here, all right? That's what I'm talking about. If I was in charge, here's another one. Nissan would have to name their next car the Liam <laughs> Nissan. Thought that was fantastic. And here's one last one. I would ban the phrase, you're all winners in kids' sporting events because some kids are losers. Okay, just kidding. All right, that's awful. All right. Some people, if they were in charge, they have awful ideas. Some people have great ideas, right? Uh, every single one of us have had those moments where we feel frustrated with the system or with the man, and we think, if I was in charge, I would totally change the way things work. Uh, some of you guys necessarily at the game last night maybe not necessarily have thought any play calling was wrong because when you're going against Ball State, every play seems like a great idea, right? <laughs> I thought the last week prior against Arizona State, there were a few third and one, fourth and one calls. I thought, why are we handing it off from the shotgun formation with a running back five yards behind the line of scrimmage who goes nowhere, right? Had those moments. Some of you guys have been in classes already this semester where you thought, this professor, God love him, but like, if I was in charge, this whole thing would run a totally different way and my life as a student would be ruined. Maybe this is what you're thinking at this point in time. But every single one of us has that instinct in us at certain times where we think, if I was in charge, things would be so much better. We're going to look at a man here in Judges 9, a man named Abimelech, who's going to have that thought. If I was in charge, things would be so much better. As we walk through the book of Judges, we've seen God raise one judge up after another who will stand as an authority over the nation of Israel, and he will rule and bring deliverance to the nation of Israel. But what we're going to see this morning in Judges 9 is not another judge, We're going to see one who will aspire to be a judge and he will take authority for himself, though God did not raise him up as a judge. And really what Judges 9 is going to be is very different than last week when we looked at passivity. Judges 9 is going to picture of a power-hungry tyrant. We're going to flip to the other end of this perspective as we continue to look at this topic of leadership. 
Really, Judges 9 and this man Abimelech is not going to be like a George Washington or a Patton or an Abraham Lincoln. Some of the great leaders of our past will be much more like a Frank Underwood from House of Cards or just some power-hungry Hitler-like ruler, all right? It's everything that's wrong with leadership is what we're going to see from Abimelech in Judges 9. And really, as we think about the topic of leadership, I'll tell you, I think there's as much that we can learn from great leaders as there are about some of the most awful leaders that we see. Judges 9 is going to be a case study in bad leadership. But there's a ton that we can learn. And so we're going to jump in Judges 9. As we look at Abimelech's life, we're going to kind of start off with the rise of this guy as a leader. We're going to look at his reign as a leader, and then we're going to look at his rejection as a leader. We're going to follow that narrative of not just Abimelech, but every other leader who rises, who reigns, and then who's at some point rejected. We're going to understand and wrestle with what do we learn from each of these story arc, each of these points of the narrative of a leader's life. A huge moment, I think, for you guys. It was a great, fun passage, even as I jumped into it this week. But as we look at Abimelech's life, the first thing that we begin to realize as he rises on the scene is that he's going to show up in in Judges 9, but we get a couple glimpses as to his background in Judges 8. So flip a page back if you can. In verse 30, we find this about Abimelech. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants. Now Gideon is the guy that was highlighted in Judges 6, incredible, incredible valiant warrior for the Lord who will end up having an incredible victory with a very few number of soldiers compared to the army that he was going to go against. Uh, Gideon is lofted in Judges 6 as one of the great warriors of the nation of Israel's past, but he has a great start, but he's going to have a horrific ending as he's going to move into idolatry. He's going to multiply wives at the end of his life, which is why he ends up with 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Verse 31, his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. So this man, Abimelech, that we're going to see in Judges 9 comes from, forth from Gideon, who has an incredible start. Interestingly enough, in Gideon's life, after this incredible, valiant military victory, the nation of Israel wants to appoint him as king. And Gideon, in the, in the height of his morality, the height of his faith and walk with God, says, no, 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 I will not be your king. I don't want to be your king. He humbly uh, rejects or, or dismisses the offer, which is going to be an incredibly different picture of what we're about to see with Abimelech, who will take what was not his. But Abimelech, we're going to find, is one of 70 sons of Gideon. And not just that he's one of 70 sons, but he's born to a concubine. And so this guy is going to have an absent father growing up. One of 70 is going to get no attention from a dad. And as the mother, or as the son of a concubine who won't even get to parent him, but will be passed on to a a wife that Gideon had, will be an unloving mother. This guy has mommy and daddy issues to the hilt. This guy's family life growing up is as dysfunctional as it gets, which is why he's going to have a giant, giant chip on his shoulder. He's going to rise in Judges 9. You're going to see this guy trying to prove against all the scoffers that he had growing up. If you found yourself in the playground growing up and someone said something about your mom or your dad, it was game time. This guy's got a concubine for a mom. I imagine childhood was just brutal for this kid. So he grows up under all of that criticism, all of that skepticism. He grows up with a dad who's distant, a mom who's unloving, and he's got some serious issues, and he's got a giant chip on his shoulder wondering whether he's worthwhile or not. And so notice what happens in Judges 9 as he shows up on the scene. Notice the chip on his shoulder, Judges 9, verse 1. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, would rule over you, or that one man would rule over you? And also remember that I am, uh, I am uh, bone and your flesh. Abimelech shows up uh, to the men and women of Shechem, and he says, What would you prefer? 
These 70 brothers and sisters of mine all ruling over you and you have no idea who to go to and power is diffused? Or would you prefer that one person arise and rule over you so that you know who is in control? In fact, he says there, as he in a sense builds a coalition and works it politically, what he says there at the end is, I am, bo- I am your bone, I am your flesh. And the point is this, what are your self-interests are my self-interests. And as he builds a coalition, that coalition is completely rooted and founded in the, the idea of self-interest and not love for the nation. And so he gets a quorum, he gets a coalition that is all about what he wants and what he can benefit for them. They're all selfishly minded. And as that coalition forms, notice in verse 3, he's going to get cash as well here. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our relative. They affirmed that his interests are theirs, and so they put their political backing on him. And then he's going to get cash in verse 4. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Verse 4, the people of Shechem come behind and they make a coalition with this man named Abimelech. And now he begins to fundraise and he gets a campaign. Coffers are filled with money from an idol temple. When it says it comes from the house of Baal, that's the temple of Baal. That's a false god. It's an idolatrous god. And so he's made a deal in a sense with the devil so that he can get into power. He doesn't care the means. He doesn't care the methods. He just knows he has to be in power. And so he makes a deal with the devil. Some people have said back to JFK, JF Kennedy's uh, presidential campaign in the 60s that he made deals with the mafia, organized crime so that he could get money, he could get backing, he could get himself in office, and he would turn on that later on in his presidency. A little bit of what's happening here is like making deals with drug dealers just so that you can get political clout and get some money so you could get a campaign going. And then he fills his campaign cabinet with what the text says are worthless and reckless fellows. He hires some muscle, some thugs, This is his campaign strategy, all right? And notice what happens in verse 5. One of my favorite words, uh, I've always wanted to have a chance to work this into a sermon. I'm going to do it this morning. It's coup d'etat. Coup d'etat. Everyone say it. Coup d'etat. There you go. That's what happens in verse 5, all right? This is what happens. Then he went to the father's house at Oprah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. Coup d'etat. He overthrows the system entirely. And he knocks off every political rival he could have had, which were his brothers. Knocks them all out. Seventy men killed on one stone in a day. Gone. And now he's the unquestioned, unrivaled leader over the people of Shechem and the nation of Israel. This is how this guy rises on the scene. This is how this guy gets empowered. And then in verse 6, everyone shuffles and follows behind him in verse 6. All the men of Shechem and all of Beth Milo assembled together and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which is in Shechem. Verse 6 is his inauguration into power. But instead of a hand on a Bible pledging uh, the willingness to serve the nation, (laughs) instead he does it by the oak of the pillar and that was the location of the temple of Baal. Instead of a hand on a Bible, he's pledging his willingness to serve the nation right beside the idol temple. The foundation of this man's reign and the foundation of this man's ascension into power is a deal with the devil and a deal with false idols. There's something significantly wrong with this guy as he rises. Uh, If I were to give you guys one application as you begin to think about this, it's this. Beware the anxiety of insecurity in leaders. Beware the anxiety of insecurity in leaders. This guy comes from a dysfunctional family. This guy has an ambition that is unparalleled of any of the 70, and he takes them out because of an unparalleled ambition. Why? 
Why does he have this incredible vision and why does he have this incredible ambition that everyone follows behind him no matter the methods? It's because he's got an anxiety and an insecurity that is unparalleled as well. It's really interesting. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, speaking of this, speaking of some politicians and and leaders says this, that many people with a great drive for power are very anxious and fearful. However, even if fear is not a reason for seeking power, it always comes with having, having it because once they get it, then they're scared of losing it. Beware the anxiety of insecurity. It's interesting, even as we talked last week about some men who were passive and wouldn't step up, that there was probably in many of them a sense of inadequacy, a sense of insecurity. And insecurity is not a problem necessarily when it leads to passivity. It can be dealt with. But when insecurity is what drives some to assume power so that they can prove themselves worthy, it's exceedingly troubling. When someone has to get power to feel like they're worth something, then you have a significant, significant problem. I want to ask you guys whether you're part of the class of 2019 as incoming freshmen or whether you're going to be going out. You guys are just quiet this morning, right? Uh, or whether you guys are going out as seniors, there's always this movement to grab authority, to grab positions, and to move up in organizations that you're a part of. What drives that? Is it a desire to bless those that you may serve, or is it a desire to make yourself feel worthwhile when at the very core of your identity is an insecurity that says, I'm not sure, but if I had that position, then I would feel more significant. If that's you, let me say this. Before you ever move into leadership, you need to deal with that at a fundamental level. Because if you don't deal with that at a fundamental level and you step into leadership to secure a sense of worth, then your position is never about who you're serving, but is it about you? And we're going to see that that's going to become absolutely destructive for those that Abimelech will lead here in a minute. So beware the anxiety of insecurity. If you're one who's insecure and it's not about, therefore, grabbing a position to make yourself feel worthwhile, but it's about maybe not feeling the courage to step forward, well, that's a beautiful place that God begins to work. Because one of the things I love about uh, this picture as well, I'm going to kind of flip the script on you a little bit, is we may beware the anxiety of insecurity, but we ought to embrace the humility of obscurity. Some of the greatest leaders emerge out of the scene out of nowhere. And for the longest time, they were kept hidden as God was working in them and crafting the very foundation of their character and their person long before charisma and competency was ever noticed. Let me give you guys a few examples. Biblically speaking, you think about the person of Moses. Think about David, men that were hidden away, and then God began to work and shape and sharpen them to be ready for the day that he would call them out of obscurity, and they would emerge with a sense of humility that had been shaped so they were ready to lead. It's not just in our Bible, but it's also in modern entertainment today. Here's a few examples, all right? Katniss Everdeen, if you will, right? Simba, Cinderella, Spider-Man, all modern TV shows, movies that we love and adore. And they're all the story of men and women who have an incredible impact, but they start with an obscurity that leads to the shaping of their humility so that when they arise on their scene, they're actually going to be ready for that moment. Because it's not about them. But it's about something and a call and a mission and something that's bigger and broader than them and their sense of worth. That's why we love these stories. People who were hidden for so long and overlooked, and then all of a sudden they emerge out of nowhere as a champion for humanity and a champion for what's right, and they overturn and they fix systems. But in the midst of their obscurity, something was beginning to be shaped in them that led to humility and a vision and a character that was shaped from the moment when no one saw them. That's why we love these stories. 
But when fear and anxiety and insecurity drive a political leader's up, uh, emergence onto the scene to grab authority, what ends up happening in their rule is that they are way more of a predator than they are a protector and a provider. And that when fear, insecurity, and anxiety drive a leader's emergence upward and they grab authority, their rule is going to be way more predatorial-like than it will be protection and provision. As an example of that, in the early 20th century, there was a man named Henry Clay Frick who was the chairman of the Carnegie Steel uh, back during that time, and he was also known as the most hated man in America. Well, why? Steel prices were skyrocketing in the business at the time, and so at that point in time, his union workers came to him in the midst of their contract being expired, wanting to renegotiate a pay raise as steel was skyrocketing in its value, and so he was making bukus of money. And as these union workers came to him asking if they could have a little bit bigger piece of the pie, he countered and said, no, no, I'll give you a 22% pay cut. (laughs) When they unsurprisingly didn't accept that pay cut, he then moved and locked them out of his plant and wouldn't let them come to work. In fact, it got so significant. Here's what this guy did. He actually installed uh, a razor barbed wire on the top of the fences. He actually built, built from the get-go, sniper towers, all right? And then he installed cannons that would rain down hot liquid upon anyone who would try to scale the fences and get into work that he had locked out. All right? Something was wrong with this dude. In fact, someone would eventually break into his house and try to assassinate him and take him out. He would survive that attack. He'd be back to work in a week where he would lay off half the workforce and cut the other half of the workforce pay in half. The dude was not in it for anyone else but himself. When leaders arise that are, have anxiety and insecurity and it's about them and not those that they're going to lead, their reign and their rule is more of a predator than it is a protector and a provider, which is exactly what we see with Abimelech. What ends up happening with Abimelech is that only of the 70 sons who survives is a dude named Jotham, and he will speak as a prophet, as really the only standing judge in this chapter. And what he will say as a parable about Abimelech's rule is this. He's going to compare him to four different things. And we're not going to read it. I'm going to try to explain it. But basically, he compares Abimelech to four different agricultural phenomenons. The first is going to be an olive tree, then a fig fig tree, uh, and then a um, third one, uh, and then a vine, and then lastly, a bramble. And why does he do it? He's going to compare Abimelech to the first three, which was an olive tree, fig tree, and vine. And what he does in a parable that he explains is he says that all three of these agricultural phenomenons were asked to rule over the agricultural world, but all three said no. With an opportunity to rule, they all three said no, because each of them provided something different to the nation, and that if they were to rule, their provision would be removed and be to the detriment of the nation. The olive tree says, no, I'm not going to rule because if I don't rule, then the nation doesn't have rich oil. And if the nation doesn't have rich oil, then the nation won't be holy. They'll have no holiness. The fig tree says, if I were to rule, then the, then the nation would have no good fruit. And if they had no good fruit, then there would not be a healthiness about the nation. Lastly, the vine says, no, no, if I were to rule over the nation, then the nation wouldn't have any wine and there would be no happiness. All right, that's a sermon for another day, right? But all three say, hey, if I were to rule, then my ruling would mean the removal of these three things, holiness, happiness, and healthiness, and it wouldn't be to the benefit of the nation. They choose a choice about reigning and leadership based on the benefit of the nation. In contrast, Abimelech is only thinking about himself as he grabs power. And therefore, he's going to be compared to a bramble that we get in verse 15, which is a worthless vine. Notice what it says. The bramble said to the trees, if, if in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the tr- bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. 
The bramble could do one of two things over the nation in an agricultural picture. It could, one, provide shade, or two, it could combust into spontaneous fire and destroy everything. So the question will be, as Abimelech is compared to Bramble, will he be a ruler who provides shade, or will he be a ruler who breaks out in a spontaneous combustible fire that destroys everything? He's going to be the latter. He's going to be that fire. Notice verse 20. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Bethmelo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Bethmelo and consume Abimelech. Everything that he touches and everyone that Abimelech touches in his reign is going to be destroyed like an atomic fireball. It is ugly, this guy's rule. Which is why, let me give you guys this other idea. It's this, to value character over charisma as you think about becoming a leader and as you're looking to follow leaders. What is it that draws us to most leaders? It's a charisma. It's a vision. It's a passion. It's an ambition. And we are so quick to overlook character. Whether we're wanting to become a leader or whether we're looking to follow a leader. It's character. Character is the most significant. Because when this guy emerges on the scene, he's got all kinds of charisma. He's got all kinds of competency. He gets a whole nation to follow behind him. But he lacks one of the most significant things that will be a fault in the foundation of his leadership that will destroy everything in its character. It's character. Ambition, vision, and attraction without character is a ticking leadership time bomb. Vision, ambition, and attraction without character is a ticking combustible fireball. That's what Abimelech is. Vision, attraction, ambition, but no character. And when he gets into power, he's going to destroy everything. He's Henry Clay Frick in the Old Testament. He destroys everything. It's awful. And so what's going to happen is it's going to be his rejection, and it doesn't take long. Notice verse 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. It's going to take three years for the nation to turn on him. And therefore, it's going to be election time where they look for a new president and a new term of office for someone new. Because notice what's happened in this guy's administration. Verse 23, Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. In Abimelech's reign, there's going to be treachery, but not just treachery, also in verse 24, so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come. There's also violence. Verse 25, The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by. In this guy's reign, there's treachery, there's violence, and there's robbery. And it takes about three years, and the nation is looking now for someone new. There's, in most football towns, there's probably no one as popular as a backup quarterback when a team is struggling. No one more popular. As soon as things start to go awry, we quickly look for a new leader. It's really quick. It takes about three years in the nation of Israel, and then people of Shechem are looking for someone new. And that someone new shows up on the scene in verse 26. Now Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. That was quick. <laughs> that was quick. They were so put off, so done with Abimelech. What they bought, they didn't get. What he was selling, they didn't get. he didn't deliver. And so in verse 27, they went out into the field, and they gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trod them and held a festival, and they went into the house of their God, and they ate, and they drank, and they cursed Abimelech. What happens in verses 26 and 27? It's the rejection of Abimelech. It's the transition of leadership as you get a new leader, but you get a nation that has not changed their gods yet. Which means what's going to happen? It's going to be the same thing over and over and over again. 
When you change leaders, but you don't change your relationship with God, nothing is going to change because what's most significant is what we believe who God is and whether we have a relationship with him and whether we're going to walk with him. This nation thinks they can walk away from God and experience blessing, and if they just change out leaders, then it will all get fixed, and nothing could be further from the truth. Again, Tim Keller says this, speaking about politics and whatnot. He says, we can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and we can turn our political activism into a kind of religion. I don't know how you view politics. Sometimes I think people float between one spectrum of absolute frustration and disengagement to the other spectrum of it will save and fix everything. And in either of those extremes, there's significant problems. If we don't engage, we can't have any influence on the system. We can't have any influence on voting and participating. But if we think it's going to fix everything, then we've misplaced where our hope ought to be. Which is why the last application I want to give you guys this morning is that you'd, put, uh, that you'd place hope in the rule of Christ. Here's the point of the book of Judges. Every single chapter, every single story, God is going to raise up a judge who's going to bring temporary deliverance for the nation. He's going to reign, he's going to rule, he's going to deliver them from their oppression and from their circumstances, and they'll experience freedom, and they'll walk in obedience for a time. Then that judge dies, and they fall back into, and they fall worse into immorality and idolatry, and it just spirals further and further and further down. And the nation of Israel continues to look for someone who will finally emerge on the scene, who will finally save them and fix this mess. And the point of the book of Judges and I'd say the point of most of the political stories in our news headlines today is that we've put our hope in the wrong person. And that what we're waiting for one day is going to be a ruler who will fix it. But it looks nothing like the rulers that we see today. That have anxiety, that have insecurity, that rule for self-motive and not for the gain of everyone else. Ultimately, what we're looking for is what the prophet Isaiah will say in Isaiah chapter 9 when he says this, speaking of one who will come one day, who will rule, he says this, speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, for a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Because on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Eventually a judge, a ruler, will arrive on the scene and his rule will be perfect. And his rule will be marked by utter humility because what did Jesus Christ do in his first arrival? He took on human flesh, identifying with humanity, a fallen humanity. And he went to a death on a cross so that he suffered an incredibly painful death on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God our Father. What political leader do you know that will do that? I don't know any. That will give their life away as a ransom, so that we can be reconciled, and that which is the most deepest thing that is broken in our hearts and in our lives can be fixed and resolved. That's what the reign of Jesus Christ does. One who came in his first coming and died a death that should not have been his, that was ours. And he died it in our place so that we could have eternal life, that we could find a hope beyond this world. But he will return again. And everything that's wrong with the proper world order that we're a part of, he will fix. And the question is, as we walk through the book of Judges, who are you looking for to fix the issues that you're looking at? Who's going to fix illnesses? Who's going to fix the systems that you see broken, socially speaking, in our world? Who's going to fix the deepest yearnings that are in your heart that seem unresolved? There's only one who will. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And the book of Judges is going to drive us to him every single time as it spirals further and further down. 
I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you look at this story and you go, I'm Abimelech. <laughs> I'm someone who's so insecure and has such an anxiety that I really think if I can grab a leadership position, then it'll all be fixed. What I'd say to you is, you can grab that position and you'll be all the more anxious because you're so scared of losing it because that position is such a definition of your worth. You pursued it for the wrong reasons and it's going to crush you. Especially when you eventually are rejected because that's what happens to every leader at some point in time. Their term comes to an end or the people turn on them. People's approval are incredibly fickle. Maybe you're one who, much like last week we saw, looks at leadership positions and says, who am I? And you pull back. And Abimelech is nothing like you. Don't think that he is. But the challenge for you is just to step up and to step in and to stand in the gap and, and to know that maybe in the obscurity that you felt, God has been shaping in you a humility that is going to found the foundation of a character upon which charisma and competencies can grow. But that character, that foundation is what's most essential and he's been shaping it in the quiet places of your life where no one's noticed you and no one's seen you. And that's a beautiful place to be. And maybe you're there today. One of the things I'd say to you, if you're in that place, is find in it a peacefulness and a joy in it as God is working when no one's watching. And there's a kindness to it. There's a quietness to it. There's a sweetness to it that is unlike those moments when finally you are on a scene and people are looking. And then you feel stresses and you feel pressures you didn't feel in that time. Allow God in the quietness of those places to work and to shape you, trusting that he has a purpose and a plan even though you can't see it. And ultimately, no matter what pressures we feel, no matter what's going on, we have one who is a ruler who can resolve those deepest issues, not just in our life, but in our world and in our systems and in the places and the injustices that we see. We have a ruler who's going to come back and he's going to fix those things. He's going to resolve those sufferings. He's going to resolve those injustices. He's going to bring about a revolution and a redemption and a righteousness and a peace that is going to be unparalleled because no one else can. And until we realize that, until we place our hope in him and not on some new ruler who will be the hope of change, we're going to always end up disappointed and disillusioned and it may not take three more years. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you place us in a university system that so highlights leadership, that so uh, desires to craft us and shape us to be leaders that will impact our cities, our communities, and our country, and I love that. But I pray that you'd help us to not run away with all of these competencies and all of these charisma and all these different things and to miss the significance of character. That really is our character that will be this determining factor of how far those charisma and competencies will take us. As we realize it's not about us, but it's about something that you're wanting to do through us for the benefit of others. And I pray that you'd allow us to be those kinds of leaders, whether we're in a position now or whether we're looking at ones that we would wonder whether we should apply for or whether we're looking at ones wondering one day whether we would do that. Lord, I pray that you would shape in us the very foundation of our hearts and our character, a kind of humility, a kind of character that will stand the tests of pressures and stresses, uh, realizing that it's not about our egos and our worth, but it's about what you would want to do in and through us for the benefit of our cities and our community. Lord, help us as those of us that may be in positions to lead with a kind of selflessness and to lead with a kind of humility that bends low and serves with the kind of humility we see in Jesus Christ. It would not just wash his disciples' feet, but it would also put his own life on a cross, and he would die on behalf of the very people he wanted to lead and love, the very people that even reject him. Lord, we thank you for that model. We thank you for that wonderful example, and I pray that you would transform our motivations, you would transform our uh, approaches, and you would help us to see some of these topics in a fresh way. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son, 
and by your spirit we pray. Amen.